Open your Bibles again this morning to Galatians chapter 5. And uh, looking at verses 22 and 23, Galatians chapter 5. You know, as we come this morning again to consider uh, another set of three of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, I want to uh, remind you, I think I've shared it before, and I think Amy Carmichael said it. I gave this uh, offer at the 8 o'clock service and no one corrected me. If Amy Carmichael did not say this, then tell me who did if you know. But the statement was, a cup brim full of sweet water cannot spill one drop of bitter no matter how badly jarred. To put it in our common language today, if you're full up to the top with sweet water, no matter how much someone knocks you, the only thing that will slosh out is sweet water. If there's no bitter in there, it can't come out. And as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit and the manifestation of that fruit, I think there's a tendency for sometimes uh, us to say, well, that's kind of like the epitome. That's the mountaintop. That's the, that's the extreme. And none of us are ever going to reach that. So then we begin to scale down and uh, kind of try to put it in a framework that we can understand and that makes sense to us as human beings. Because when you talk about these qualities being in our lives, in abundance, to the full, all at the same time, the natural tendency is to back off from that and say, I don't think that's what he's talking about because, after all, I'm only human. And we, we tend to do that with a lot of parts of Scripture, not realizing that God is fully aware of the fact that we're only human, but he's talking about a life that is supernatural. It's not one that's expected to be lived out of our capacity. It's expected to be lived out of His capacity. Some people stumble over the Gospel. They have a hard time understanding the very clear message of Scripture. God is a holy God. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot accept sin in His presence. And if you have any sin in your life, you are unacceptable to God. You are under His judgment. And then that sin gets defined as any any shortfall of God's absolute perfection. And you say, that's not possible. Well, of course it's not. But God makes provision. That is the Gospel message. Jesus Christ has died and shed His blood to cleanse us from sin, to make us holy, to make us fit to be restored to fellowship with God and to dwell and exist in His presence in a fellowship way. And so, God has made provision for what is not humanly possible. And in the fruit of the Spirit, God has made provision for what is not humanly possible. It is not the fruit of our best efforts as Christians to live for God. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is what He produces in our lives, and it comes from Him. I do know that D.L. Moody said, read your Bibles... They will shed light on your commentaries. 
And we need to come back to that time and again and be reminded that whenever we want to kind of figure out, well, so what does it really mean? It probably really means just exactly what it really says. And we need to come back to that foundation and say, God is saying to us, when you are filled with the Spirit, these are the qualities that are present in your life. They're called the fruit because they're not nine different things that get kind of piecemeal developed, one here and one there. Last week I used the illustration of an apple when I told you that it had a peeling and it has a core and it has a pulpy fruit inside and a stem and there's different parts to the apple, qualities, if you please, to the apple. But the apple is simply a whole fruit. And when the fruit of the Spirit is developed in our lives by His presence, it has all of these elements with it. And they look like love, joy, and peace. And now today, patience and kindness and goodness. So I want to focus on those three this morning. Patience, kindness, and goodness. And when I went to study the word patience, I I was surprised. There are about ten or more different words in the Greek language that at one point or another we translate in English as patience. And so I, I immediately began to say, okay, but what is the word that Paul has used in this passage to express what he means by the fruit of the Spirit? Because some of the other terms are not necessarily ungodly, they're just not the one he's talking about here. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, and the Greek word happens to be makrosomia. But it's defined in one of the lexicons as a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. I like the idiom of some languages that one of the uh, lexicons pointed out that some languages translate this into an idiom to remain seated in one's heart. You know, when everything's going crazy around you, to remain seated in one's heart. You may not be seated in your body. You may be on your feet, but in your heart. Or to keep one's heart from jumping. So, that's kind of an interesting idiomatic way of saying this is the kind of patience that we don't kind of lurch into reaction, but something else is going on. We need to distinguish it from some other kinds of patience that are not necessarily ungodly qualities. For example, the word stego means to put up with or tolerate. Uh, We endure everything rather than uh, hinder the gospel. Uh, sometimes people who suffer chronic pain or have long-term illness have this quality about them. They endure the suffering they're going through. It's not the patience Paul is talking about here. But it's the quality that kind of hangs in there over time. And that's a good thing too. And there's another kind of patience which kind of means to put up with. And that's the word that's used to describe God's attitude toward the Jews when they were wandering in the wilderness. Remember, they had come to Kadesh Barnea. The report of the spies came back. Uh, Ten said, there's no way possible. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, yeah, we can do this. And the people listened to the ten and said, there's no way God has brought us out here just to, to bring us to defeat. They rebelled. 
And God said, fine. You don't have faith. You know, I can't do anything with people that are faithless. Remember the message from Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. So he said, you guys are going to all run around and die out here. But it's going to take about 40 years because I've got to raise up your kids and your grandkids to be ready to conquer the land of Canaan. And so the Scripture says God tolerated them for 40 years. He fed them. He cared for them. Their sandals didn't wear out. Their clothing didn't wear out. He was providing for them, but He was basically waiting it out until faithful people would come on the scene. That's not a bad quality either. But the quality that Paul is talking about in the fruit of the Spirit, as I was thinking about it more clearly, is a reactive quality. It's the kind of patience that is manifested when the jar gets knocked. It's the kind of patience that is manifested when we are confronted with opposition, when we are confronted with a calamity, when there's provocation. And all of a sudden, our lives are jarred. Now, I want to be careful to define what it is not before we attempt to land firmly on what it is. It does not mean that we are not shaken. You cannot get bad news about yourself or a family member that doesn't startle you. It is normal to be shaken. That happens. And when it happens, it doesn't mean you're out of the Spirit. It just means you're alive and breathing. And, and that's normal. It doesn't mean that there will not necessarily be some anger associated with the event. Jesus walked into the temple in that last week of His life as He came back into the temple. And He saw the money changers bartering in the courtyard for, you know, they had to exchange the money to the temple money and then they used it to buy sacrificial animals because people came from a long distance and it was hard to haul your lamb along the whole way. And so they would come to Jerusalem on the journey for Passover and then they would buy the sacrificial animals there. And some people had set up quite a business and they were... It was Middle Eastern bazaar. I mean, it was it was the the marketplace. They were haggling over this and that and the value of the money and and the the place of God, the temple of God, was intended to be a house of prayer. And the courtyard of the Gentiles was just exactly that. It was supposed to be a courtyard where Gentiles could get next to God. They couldn't go in the temple, but they could connect with God by being in the holy place. And these people had made it a, a, a wicked, scheming marketplace. And Jesus came into that environment and He was angry. In fact, it enraged Him. And sometimes, you know, we look at His action and we say, wow, that doesn't look like patience to me because... All of a sudden, we see him cracking a whip, and the Scripture says he was overturning the tables of the money changers. I mean, you have to see this scene in your mind's eye. He didn't come up and go, yeah, you guys get out of here. You know? 
He was wielding that whip and throwing tables over, scattering coins everywhere, letting loose animals, I mean, and driving them out. This was a violent... To look at him, he must have looked like a madman gone wild. But we fail sometimes to connect it with the preceding verse where it says he sat down and braided a, a, a whip out of cords. You see the difference? This is not the frustrated mother in the supermarket tired of her kids screaming and backhands them across the face impulsively. This is not that. This is sitting down saying, I am really angry with what I see here. And I am going to respond. And he sits down and puts a whip together and I'm confident he is praying in the process. Because he's always in touch with his father. He said, I don't ever do anything on my own initiative. That's a carte blanche statement of his whole ministry. I don't ever do anything on my own initiative. So he's waiting for orders patiently as he braids the whip. And then God turns him loose. And it reminds the disciples of the Scripture that says, Zeal for your house, O Lord, consumes me. So here is a violent response in righteous anger, but not impulsive. It is calculated. God is like the ultimate SWAT team. He has no collateral damage. He doesn't accidentally get somebody else. His strikes are surgical. Jesus applied the whip and, and the rebuke to exactly whom He wanted. He was not a wild man in the temple court. He was under control. And so, when we, when we look at this patience that Paul is talking about as the fruit of the Spirit, first of all, it is, it is the kind of patience that is already present when the startling thing, the tragic thing, the unnerving thing, somebody blasts you, just, just turns around and screams at you for no reason, and you don't, what did I do? It's the patience that rises to that occasion. And it does so with a calm that is not reactive, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. So I ask you this morning, when your cup is jarred, what spills? Does this quality character of the Holy Spirit of patience. I'm not reacting here. I'm in the Spirit. I, I may be frightened now. I, I may be horrified by the news I've heard. I may be suddenly struck with grief. I may be angered by what I've seen. But what's happening in my reaction? How am I communicating? Am I a person under the control of the Holy Spirit. I think that this particular quality is, is God calling us to see that He wants us always to be a people abiding in Him, resting in Him, walking in Him, so that He can always be controlling our lives. 
And friends, you can't produce this in the spur of the moment. This is only present when you are full of the Spirit. Because this is His fruit. It is not merely a natural attribute. And then as we move to the next two, kindness and goodness, these are honestly interrelated. And and almost all of people who comment on this passage recognize this. That kindness and goodness, even in the basic words, have some overlap. But if we're going to try to make some kind of division between them with the understanding that that you can't make a razor-sharp line of demarcation, they, they, they have some overlap. But kindness is an attitude more than an action, and, and goodness is behavior or action after the attitude. Let me go back and explain. The word crestodes has the foundation of moral goodness and integrity moving toward kindness and benevolence. In other words, it is a spirit of wanting to be helpful and to bless others. A spirit of wanting to be helpful and to bless others. I think people can see this in you. Are you the kind of person who wants to come to the aid of the person in need? Is there something in you that responds? You want to be helpful. Your love for people flows out of you in a desire to bless them. You may not always be able to do what they need. And that's that's a real fact. We have limitations. You may not have resources. You may not have uh, the ability to help them. But what is your heart telling you? And what are they picking up from you? You can tell the difference in people who are kind and people who aren't. People who are kind are open to you. Empathy flows out of them. Their, their compassion is there. They, they, you know they want to be of service even when they can't be. You know that about them. And you're drawn to them. They're winsome. Whereas people that are not kind, they've got the wall up. And, and, and you know that they're not interested in your problems. They're just kind of putting up with you till they, you get out of their face. And you sense that. But the kind person is wanting to respond to you. Their, their heart is open to you. They want to meet you. Do you find that in your heart you have a genuine desire to reach out in love and care and compassion to people around you? Do you want to meet them? Do you want to come to their aid? Do you want to bless them? Do you want to be helpful in their life? Is that what's there when when you're confronted with need? People pick up kindness. And it looks like the gentle approachable person who, whom you can tell wants to be of help. Now, goodness is kind of when you're able to follow through. When you're actually able to give the help. And I go back to Romans chapter 3 because after Paul has explained why Gentiles are lost and why Jews are lost and everybody's lost. And he comes to that great passage in the third chapter of Romans that underscores total depravity. In the midst of that passage, he says, apart from Jesus Christ, there is none that do good. There's no one who does good. Now, we can look around in our world and we may be able to pick out some people who are not Christians that seem to do good. They're philanthropists. 
They give a lot of money. They do this. They do that. Whatever. You know, we look at them and say, well, well, look at them. I can't see their heart. I don't know what's in their heart. And maybe the outward activity has a good benefit. But the Scripture says there is none that does good from the deep recesses of their being. That, that the desire to, to do good things without reservation and without regard to personal cost, that is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there's another thing about this goodness that I want to say before we get into it, because when I say what I'm about to say, all the rebels among us love it. And I want you to know that if you love to break the rules, I mean, if you just delight in breaking the rules, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'll get to that in a minute. But this is not an excuse for rebellion. People sometimes want to, uh, you know, to, to exercise their self-will contrary to all the rules and regulations because they're rebels at heart. And the Scripture says that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. And whenever a godly person is required by circumstances to violate the rules or the regulations, they do so with a certain sense of sadness, but obedience to a higher authority. Let me explain. Do you remember the disciples brought before the Sanhedrin after they had uh, been jailed and then they had been warned? Do not go out and preach this gospel anymore. And they said to them, we cannot but preach the gospel because we must obey God rather than men. They didn't do that with a haughty arrogance. They didn't do that with pride-filled rebellion. They just simply did that with humble acknowledgement that they had to obey God regardless of what the legal powers said in the moment. God's people have always been called upon through the ages to obey God rather than men. And there are times when obedience to God and doing the right thing goes against the convention or the grain or the regulations. And in this passage, goodness is the quality that throws all that to the wind when the need demands action. Paul describes this classically. When you look at Romans chapter 5, and you've heard me say this many times, but it, we really have to get it fixed in our minds. Paul says in that passage, hardly anyone will die for a righteous man. Now, what he means there by the righteous man is the one who keeps all the rules. The one who follows the, the letter to the T and dots the, the, the I and crosses the T. This is the person in the, in the office that uh, you've been waiting in the waiting room all afternoon to see someone, and it's now a minute till five o'clock, and this person gathers up the things on their desk, and there's five more people in the waiting room, and they look at their watch and they say, five o'clock, you'll have to come back tomorrow, I'm done for the day. That is a righteous person. They are exactly keeping the rules. They don't get paid after five. They have to punch out at five. They're done at five. The office closes at five. 
and never mind that you've been there since two. Come back tomorrow. You can see why Paul would say, that person doesn't inspire very many people. <laughs> Nobody's going to give their life for this kind of person. I mean, it's like, well, yeah, did they do anything wrong? No, they did everything right. But there was no heart there. There was no compassion there. Paul says they're not going to, no one's going to die for that person. What does a good person do? A person who is filled with this kind of goodness inconveniences themselves. They go out of their way. Maybe they sit down beside the person and say, you know what, maybe the computer system shut down. I don't know. They say, you know what, there's nothing I can do for you right now, but I'll hang out and listen to your trouble. I mean, you've waited all this time. I care about you. And I'm going to take the action that I can take regardless of whatever the rules say. I'm going to do what I can do for you. That person, Paul says, when they consistently behave that way, people will die for them. I mean, they're the kind of person that inspire you to want to sacrifice. That is a good person. Goodness is that quality that comes up to meet the need regardless of the cost. You remember when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath and the Pharisees said, You can't do that! It's the Sabbath day. You broke the rules. And Jesus asked this question. Now, he was, they were the Jewish leaders. That was the, the regulations of the religion and requirements of the day. It wasn't exactly technically the Old Testament, <coughs> although they thought it was. They thought they had understood what God said. Do no work on the Sabbath. Jesus first asked them a question. He says, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? Is it right to do good on the Sabbath? And the answer is, yes. Yes. And then he quoted the law that explained the principle. He said, even in the law of Moses, it said, if the ox falls into the ditch on the Sabbath day, or donkey or whatever, you can rescue the animal. That can't wait until tomorrow. <laughs> it's got to be remedied now. You can do that. So he said, I will heal on the Sabbath. I will do good on the Sabbath. Now, that flew in the face of all the convention and all the rules. I say to myself, what if I were a Jewish doctor in that day? What would the translation be for me in my practice? Well, the first thing is, I would not have my practice open on the Sabbath day. I wouldn't accept all comers on the Sabbath day. I'm, I'm resting on the Sabbath. My practice is closed. But if some Gentile runs to my door with a crisis and they're banging on the door and they're bleeding in the street, I respond. That's goodness. Uh, maybe I'm ceremonially unclean. Maybe I can't go to synagogue. Maybe I just blew it for the religious uh, work of the day. But I did the right thing for this person. Because God has called me to do that. I sometimes... You know, wondered to myself, um, I, I finished being a paramedic some years ago. My license expired a couple of years ago. I don't have a license to do anything anymore. I'm just an ordinary person on the street. Except, I know a lot of stuff. And I've often thought, what would I do if I came into an accident situation and a person needed what we technically called advanced medical intervention? Legally, I cannot do anything but render first aid. 
and probably that's all I would be able to do. But if there were something I could do of an advanced nature, at the risk of practicing medicine without a license, at the risk of being sued, at the risk of being arrested and incarcerated, would I respond to the need of the person regardless of the regulations? A good person who has ability and knowledge yields assistance. You just can't not do it. You know, I, I used to hear many doctors and nurses say, I have nothing on my car that identifies me as a medical professional. I don't ever stop at any scene because you can really get sued. And I heard others who'd stopped every time. Was the risk the same? Sure it was. What was the difference? They were into medicine for something other than a paycheck. And protection from a law. They were there because they cared about people. In the passage, the good person is the one who takes action on behalf of others. Regardless of personal cost cultural values or tradition or bureaucratic conventions which are not moral in their essence. A good person goes out of their way to help another person. John, in his first letter, kind of put it like this. He said, if someone comes to your door and they're hungry and in need and you have the stuff in your pantry to meet their needs, and you say to them, depart, be warmed and filled. John says, how does the love of God dwell in you? How can you send them away like that? They say, well, I'm ready for bed. It's inconvenient. They're dirty. I don't want them on my table. How does the love of God dwell in you? Goodness is that quality of life that rises in love and compassion to meet the needs of people. Even when it costs me something. Even when it's inconvenient. Even when it gets into my wallet. Even when it causes my neighbors to be disgusted with me. Even when it goes against their traditions. So, as we look at these fruit this morning, patience, kindness, goodness, are they present in your life? Do you see them? What kind of reaction do you have when people push your buttons? What kind of spirit do you have toward people who have needs? What kind of action do you take when it's within your ability? As I have been preaching through the fruit of the Spirit, and I shared this at the end of 8 o'clock, I'm going to share it with you because we need to look at ourselves and not make excuses. Some of the passages that uh, came to my mind was one when when Jesus was at the Last Supper, you know, when He got up from the table to wash their feet, and He's kind of going around the room, and everybody's going, what's He up to? And He comes to Peter, and Peter, Peter's just overcome with shame and, and embarrassment. You know, here's the Master washing feet. 
And he says, Lord, you are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. And then Peter, being Peter, he goes to the other extreme. He says, well, then wash all of me. Give me a bath. Because he, he doesn't want to miss out. And, you know, and I can just see Jesus almost saying, oh, Peter, man, you don't need a bath. You're clean. <laughs> but your feet are dirty. But that was a spiritual, moral lesson. And the custom of the day, because they wore sandals, everybody took a bath at some point or another. I don't know how often they did, but, but they took a bath. They didn't need a bath, but they walked dusty streets in sandals, and they come into your house with dirt on their feet. It's inevitable. And every host provided a basin and water and a towel right at the doorway. And if there wasn't a servant there, they would offer to wash your feet. And it wasn't just so you could keep their carpets clean. You know, it was just, it was just a courtesy. They washed your feet. They reclined at table, by the way, and their feet were kind of near the table. So I don't know how all that played into it. But it was customary to wash the feet. And friends, you and I are kind of like that. We don't need a bath. We're clean. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We belong to Him. But we walk in the world. And sometimes life just rubs off. The dust kicks up and our feet get dirty. And we need to come back just to be refreshed. Along with that, another passage of Scripture came to mind. And... Uh, I got two of them mixed up in the first service, but I've been straightened out now, so I'll get them straight. Um, but in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, the people were kind of frightened uh, because persecution was breaking out and whatever, and they gathered in the house to pray, and they were having a prayer meeting. And the Scripture says the place where they were praying was greatly shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing is that is after Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So you say, can I be filled again? Well, somebody put it this way. Sometimes he leaks out. Now, I don't know how theologically accurate that is, but I know the reality is that sometimes we walk along and our relationship with God perhaps gets a little cool or we get the dirt on our feet, or life just happens, and, and, and we all of a sudden don't realize we're getting stale. And then we read these things and we say, oh, that's too hard for me. What we need is a fresh cleansing. We need a foot washing. We need a fresh outpouring. We need to be filled up. A cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill any bitter water no matter how badly it's kicked. And I've been looking at these fruit of the, the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't like what I see in my own life. These are not all there in all of their fullness. You know, the more I've been studying these and preaching and asking myself the hard questions... And so these other passages of Scripture came to my mind. And, and my heart's desire is, Lord, wash my feet. 
Fill me afresh. Pour Your Spirit out upon me. I want to be filled. I want these qualities present in my life. And only the Holy Spirit can produce them. And I confess that to you this morning because I want you to know don't take this lightly. Don't just run by these words and say, oh, that's just that's kind of way out there, but yeah, I'm just me. Then you're wrong. You need to be filled. God wants us to be people who look like this. And He wants to fill you. And if you find that you've gotten a bit stale or that you've leaked a little and there's some flesh coming out, you need to go back to full surrender. You need to come back to that place where the Holy Spirit of God is pouring Himself out upon you. And you need to be filled anew and afresh with the Spirit of God. Will you open your heart to that this morning? Don't blow this off. Take a serious look at it and understand this is what God wants to do in your life. Will you let Him? Father, I just want to pray this morning that You would draw us in Your presence and that You would fill us with Your Spirit. Lord, if there are those of us here this morning who recognize our deficiency, give us the grace and the courage to come back to Your feet, O God, to the well of living water, to the bread of life, to partake of Jesus. And to be filled anew and afresh. He said, if you're thirsty, come to me and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that your Holy Spirit would come mightily upon us. And that we would be willing to be surrendered and submitted to your full power. And that you would fill us to overflowing. And Father, this morning, too, in this moment, I just want to pray for my sister Marge. I want to lift her up. She's been having shooting pains, even as we've been sitting here this morning worshiping. And she needs your touch. And I want to ask you, Jesus, to bring your healing touch to Marge's body. Oh God, pour your Spirit out upon her, not only for the fullness of these qualities, but for the power that gives life to our mortal bodies. Lord, protect her and lift her up and pour your grace out upon her. Lord, in a few minutes we're going to pray for Ashley. And there are even maybe others. Be present in your healing power this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.